Perhaps you've heard the saying, maybe you've been talking around the water cooler at work, maybe at school, maybe even in a discussion with a spouse or a family member, you say, you know what, man, there's really only two kinds of people, and then they fill in uh, two uh, predetermined categories, followed by some criteria in which they separate themselves. So I thought I'd give you a few examples of what I mean. There really are two kinds of people. Marsha, go give me that first one. There are those who know how to eat their french fries and those who are a complete mess. There are really only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who love dogs and the rest of you weirdos. There are really only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who drink God's nectar, Coke, and the rest of you people, the Pepsi drinkers. We know how to pray for you. Uh, There really are only two kinds of people. There are those who know how to eat a chocolate bar and those who eat it like I do. I got one more, Marsha. There really are only two kinds of people, those with the Holy Spirit and those without. Um, I'm just teasing. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's another one. At this time of year, there's one great big category, right? There's the pumpkin spice weirdos, right? Like, I don't want to say that pumpkin spice spam is a, is a sign of the apocalypse and Jesus is on, on his way back. I'm just saying be ready, okay? Well, today, here's my big idea. Isaiah is going to teach us that there really are only two kinds of people. There really are only two kinds of people in this world. Those whose final outcome will be to incur the eternal judgment of God. And those whose final outcome will be to enjoy the eternal peace of the salvation with God. And Isaiah 34 and 35 are going to lay that at our feet today. And if I'm going to be faithful to the text, I need to lay that at your feet today. And I'll get this to this when I close, but I'm going to lay before you decision time. What final outcome will be yours today? What person will you be? Because honestly, reading through Isaiah 34 is scary. Let's just admit it. We're going to, I mean, we're going to get into it. But we're going to have to face the fact that God is a righteous and holy God, and one day he will call the world his creation that has neglected and rejected him to give an account for themselves. But the grace and peace of today is, is that God does not leave us all there under his judgment, but rather freely offers grace and mercy to his people. So I'll invite you today to ask yourselves, are you going to live by faith in God or by faith in yourself? Will God save you or must you save yourself? If Aladdin promised to show Jasmine the world, Isaiah is going to promise his listeners and readers today the eternal destiny of two kinds of people. Chapter 34 will show us the final destiny of those who buy into this world and all of its false promises. Chapter 35 will show us the destiny of those who are sold out and live upon the promises of God. Let's begin, Isaiah 34, 1. What I'm going to try to do is, is take some bigger chunks and kind of give you an overview of what the pieces of God's judgment are upon as we make our way through this chapter. Let's begin with verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. Here as Isaiah begins this next chapter, this next section of, of God's word, uh, Assyria, the enemy nation of God's people, fades from the background and now Isaiah addresses the whole world. 
The one nation he does mention in this section is Edom, and if you were a careful Old Testament Bible reader, or I'll say Bible nerd, you'll recognize that as a reference to the two sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that they're described this way, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Esau would be the man who would be the patriarch of the nation of Edom. And it is nothing small to say that, that Edom would serve to be the, the epitome of the antithesis or the opposite of God's people. They're the, they're the photo negative of what it means to live according to God's promises. Esau himself was the firstborn of Isaac, Jacob the secondborn. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of red stew. Traded a blessing from God of being the firstborn that carried with it weight and blessing and, and the patriarchal line for the family. Traded that for temporary satisfaction of his hunger pains. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, when you consider the creation narrative? When Adam and Eve traded the blessing and peace of God for a temporary satisfaction, we're told. When it says that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked good for food. And she took and ate and gave some to her husband with her. See, the Edomites simply made the same mistake humanity has always made, which is, is trying to satisfy our inner longings apart from God. And so Edom will serve in this chapter as, the, as the, kind of the, 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 the tip of the spear for, for those who will receive God's judgment because they live under that philosophy. I can create peace and prosperity for myself apart from God. The people of God have had a long and tenuous relationship to Edom in the Old Testament. They've been feuding brothers in Jacob and Esau. They've been warring nations. And ultimately, as I said, Edom epitomizes what it means to live with antagonism toward God. This section is meant to serve as a prophetic warning of grace. See, anytime God uh, prophesies or promises a future judgment, you know what he's doing? He's giving us a fair shot at being warned. And so while admittedly this chapter is scary, there's some, there's some graphic, violent language about God's action in judgment here, that day has yet not come, which means what? God is still being gracious even in this moment. That God has even given you a chance right now in this place to be warned of what will come if you continue to live in the opposite of him. Verse 2 through 10, next section. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their host. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out. God's anger and rage and judgment will not give time for funerals or mourning, but rather the slain will just simply be cast out. And the stench of their corpses shall rise, verse 3 continues. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall, as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my, swore, for my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends upon, or excuse me, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword; it is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, and young steers with their mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, 
a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. That's about what this passage deserved. It's just humble silence. As Lord describes a swift and terrible day of judgment. The Lord has four weapons he'll use against the nations. The one is his rage against them. The nations who, who continue to build and continue to create and continue to try embody a life of prosperity and wealth and human flourishing apart from God, which we know always falls apart. History is littered with societies and cultures that have tried to build upon something other than God and been fallen and laid to the waste. The Lord has a sword, we're told, and it is only satisfied with blood. Think about this, a sword coming down from heaven. What, what protection could we creatures lift to protect ourselves from a sword in heaven? None. There is no hiding we're told that the Lord's sword is, is satisfied with blood because the Lord has a sacrifice in Brazra, a place where there will, there will be those who are under the judgment and they will be sacrificed. You see, from the beginning, justice, heavenly, eternal, God-level justice has demanded a sacrifice of blood for sin. And on the final day of judgment, it will be no different. You see, someone's blood will be shed for your sin. It will either be Christ's as your substitute or what Isaiah 34 warns us very clearly is, it will be yours. And finally, the Lord has a day of vengeance. Once again, this is, this is a day in the future. And so even now, even as we hear these, these heavy, these scary, admittedly, these dark things, it is a gift of grace because there is still breath in our lungs. There's still time. There's still time to read these and, and be humbled by them and, and confess and turn to Christ in faith and hope and trusting and recognizing that there is no surviving apart from Christ. There is no thriving apart from Christ. Verse 11. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. Speaking of the land of Edom, the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom, and all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals and abode for ostriches. God here is, is deconstructing the society with Edom. Again, it is the tip of the spear of his judgment. God is deconstructing this human society that they've tried to build. And what we see here, God describing the, the physical and literal destruction of, of Edom is that all of the cities, all of the inhabited places, all of a sudden become like that post-apocalyptic scene where the animals have taken over. You've seen those movies, right? Watch those shows, right? Where, where human society has fallen and now kind of the animals have reclaimed downtown. That's what's going on here in Edom. We're told that owls are nesting there. The hawks and porcupines have taken over. It's an abode for ostriches. 
Verse 14, the wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the nightbird settles and find for herself a resting place. Humanity has been wiped free from the area. Verse 15, the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Verse 16, seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these things shall be missing. What's that, what's that mean there? It means you, you can bank on this. You can trust that this is going to happen, says Isaiah. Read from the book of the Lord and understand that not one of these promises, not one of these things that God has said through Isaiah that is going to happen will not happen. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded and the Spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. What God describes here as happening to Edom typifies what the world has done. The world, again, if we go all the way back to Genesis 4, after sin enters human history and Adam and Eve are cast out, from that point forward, we have been trying to create and recreate Eden. That is, recreate a a, a paradise and a prosperity apart from God's presence. And every time it fails. And throughout that history, we, we have continued to try and establish ourselves free of God's uh, restraint as human beings. And at each time, it, it is destined to fall. We're, we're living right in the middle of another cycle of that. Consider it. We're in, a, we're in a technological revolution. What is the vision? What is the pitch from companies like Google and Amazon and Apple and Tesla and Facebook? Aren't they trying to create a better world through technology? A utopia, if you will. My 13-year-old son in English class, he's reading the book The Giver. And we're having these amazingly interesting conversations about the idea of creating a utopia and, and how it results in a dystopia every time. And what God's telling us here in Isaiah 34 is that in Edom's attempt to create this, this culture that can live and flourish apart from God, it will only end in dystopia. It will only end in destruction. We, we too, as people, are, are continuing to create a better world, but it cannot exist apart from the presence and person of Jesus Christ. This section describes God's judgment upon all of our combined effort to create life, to create peace, to create utopia, to create Eden without him. Adam and Eve couldn't do it. They could not stay in paradise apart from God. It's all the same lie been told from the beginning. That you can flourish apart from God. Isaiah 34 describes the destiny of those who buy into that lie. But the good news is, we're doing two chapters today, which means we get to turn to Isaiah 35. And so if you look back in your Bibles, Isaiah is going to tell us the truth in chapter 35 that salvation, Eden, paradise, Whatever that inward longing that you have that you, you've tried to satisfy apart from God, it can only be found in God himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pick up Isaiah 35, verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like crocus. Any, uh, any gardeners know what a crocus is? I had to look it up. I had no idea what it was. It sounded like a crocodile to me. It's a flower, right? It's a beautiful, brightly colored flower. It is not something you would see normally in the desert. It's something that is, flourishes as a result of tender care and time 
and effort. And so what are we told at the beginning of Isaiah 35, right? Right after the judgment of God, right after all of the fat and the blood and the animal guts and all this stuff all over the place, what do we get here in verse 1? A wilderness and dry land that begin to rejoice and they begin to blossom like a beautifully, tenderly cared for flower. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. We, we get a wilderness in this desert area that is, that is flourishing and singing like some Disney film. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. Why? Verse 2 continues, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. What is it that produces flourishing in the desert? What is it that refreshes the dry land? It is insight and vision into the glory of God. And there is no better place to see the glory and majesty of God than the gospel of Jesus Christ, than the power of the resurrection, than the beauty of Jesus' ascension to the throne of God. Verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Underline verses 3 and 4, if you would. Mark them down. uh, Memorize them. In the midst of describing God's judgment upon the nations, Isaiah turns his attention to the majesty and glory and salvation of God, which is meant to be an encouragement. Encouragement to who? To those who, with weak hands and feeble knees, those who have grown older and weak, longing for the day of joy, longing for the day of salvation, longing for the day when the suffering will be over. What's Isaiah tell them? Hey, strengthen them and make firm them. Tell them who are, who are anxious, who are worried, who are nervous, be strong and fear not, for God will come with what? Vengeance. What an interesting thing to encourage someone with. Be encouraged if you've grown weak and feeble. Be encouraged if you've grown anxious. God will bring vengeance and recompense. That is repayment for those things done wrong. What an interesting way to encourage someone. I've never tried that. So I began to think, what, what encouragement could it be? If we go back to the relationship between Israel and Edom, Israel and Assyria, Israel is a nation that has been plagued by its surrounding enemies. They've had violence done to them. They have wrong done to them. They have had sins committed against them. They've been betrayed when they've made promises. They've been looted when left weak and vulnerable and taken advantage of. And so what does Isaiah encourage them with? That there will be a day of justice. I might say to you this morning, Isaiah 34 continues, even in the midst of all of the judgment, to spring forth hope and encouragement. Because consider this, if you've had wrong done to you that has not been answered for, there is a day in which God will have vengeance. You can look to the justice of God for encouragement when you have been sinned against. If you've had something terrible done to you that you feel like has marked your soul and, and, and you, you, you thirst for justice, be encouraged. Do not be anxious, but rather be strong. Fear not. God will come. There will be a day where all those who have done the wrong things that they've done to you will have to answer for it. The thing that struck me about this is 
is consider the amount of bad news we have access to. Consider the effect that social media and a 24-hour news cycle, both good and bad, has brought to our attention just the level of brokenness and evil that exists worldwide, right? Like, I used to be very aware of all the brokenness and wrongdoing in my own living room, maybe in my city if I read the newspaper, maybe if I watched the local news in my local area or state, but now I can know all of the wrong things committed by evil men across the globe at any minute of every day as much as I want to. I can engorge myself on that knowledge. And think about the level of anxiety that can create as you watch evil after evil be committed against the weak and vulnerable by the hands of the powerful. Wouldn't that create in you some anxiety? No wonder anxiety has spiked in our culture and society. No wonder we've got junior high and high school students right, taking anti-anxiety meds. Why? Because their lives are flooded with all of the negative evil in the world. Isaiah 34 is an antidote to that. The day of vengeance for God is an antidote to that. That I don't have the power to set this right. But there is one who does, and his promises matter. Amen? Amen. That he will set it right. Verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Consider what we contribute to our salvation. Consider what we bring to the table, God's sovereign, powerful judgment and justice. His gracious salvation is brought to his people. What do we get to bring to the table? Oh, just uh, blindness, deafness, muteness, lameness, weak hands, and feeble knees. We are fully and wholly dependent upon the grace of God to be saved. Amen? Yet, in all of our afflictions... God promises the beautiful and righteous antidote. Sight for the blind, hearing for the deaf, jumping for joy for the lame, songs of worship for the mute. And all of this breaks forth like a river in the wilderness, like streams in the desert. Verse 7. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. We see God's judgment come in, the structures and systems of man are are pushed out, the wilderness takes over, and then right through that, God cuts a road. He's building a highway. The highway will be the way of holiness. It will be the way of those who acknowledge God in all of their ways. The New Testament will tell us that it will be those who put their faith and trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The road through the judgment of God belongs to those who belong to Christ. We're told, verse 8, the unclean shall not pass over it, It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That was an encouragement to me. (laughs) Verse 9. 
No lion shall be there, nor any shall ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed. Underline that word, redeemed shall walk there. How do you get there? You've got to be redeemed. How do you get redeemed? You are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood spilt for your sins in your place. That's how you get to the road. That's how you find it. You've got to be redeemed by Christ. Verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Underline that word, ransomed. Isaiah gives us two words to describe the condition of God's people. Redeemed, again, which is an action done upon us, and then ransomed, right? Who needs to be ransomed? Those who've been stolen or taken or kidnapped, right? Those who've been grieved, they need, they need to be paid for. They need to be secured. Sin, Satan has, has captured us apart from God's kingdom, but God in his beautiful power, heroic grace comes and ransoms us, exchanges Christ as payment for us and for our sin. If you are Christ today, you have been redeemed. You have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, and you have been ransomed. You have been rescued from the eternal fate of judgment. This is what is laid at your feet today. Will you be stuck? And will you be captured in the self-focus and selfishness of sin? Or will you be freed? So listen to verse 10. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain, or the NIV puts it, overwhelmed with gladness and joy. And then get this, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. What a beautiful picture of the day of salvation. A day when the joy of the Lord will overwhelm our soul. And what's more, all of the sorrows all of the, the heavy sighs that, that carry with the, the pain and brokenness we've experienced in this world, all of that, we're told, will flee, will run, will be chased away by the beauty and glory of the grace of God revealed on that day. Consider all of the things going on in your life that aren't right right now, whether it's physical ailments, emotional stress, all of that perishes on the day of salvation in Christ. It is clear from these chapters, in chapter 34, there is judgment. And it is clear from chapter 35 that there is salvation. You must choose God's salvation in order to avoid God's judgment. Salvation is simply God entering into our lives with his grace in Christ to see and meet all of our needs. Salvation is God liberating your soul from the prison of self-focus and selfishness. Salvation is God clearing out the dark inclinations and affections of your heart and replacing them with a thirst and a hunger for His glory. And to experience God's salvation today, you must believe two things and you must do one thing. The first thing you must believe is you must assess yourself honestly in light of God's holiness and admit your sinfulness. Don't worry, you're not alone. For all who follow Jesus, all who will experience God's salvation, start here. Second thing you must believe is you must believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation. That Jesus has endured the judgment of God and destruction that we deserve and that we have been gifted the life he deserved. If you are ready to believe these two things, 
The final thing you must do, the Bible speaks of it in different ways, but it's clear in each case it involves an act of our will, that we must believe in Jesus, we must trust in the Father, we must follow him and place ourselves in his hands. And Moses spoke to the nation of Israel and delivered to them the law of God. He gave them these words in Deuteronomy 30. And I'll leave them with you as I pray. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore would you choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. Let me pray for you. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. And God, I just pray for those whose minds have not been made up. God, those whose souls have been unconvinced. God, those whose hearts remain unchanged. I pray that your spirit, God, would apply your word to them today. God, that we might hear in Isaiah 34 a sober warning. And Father, we might hear the good news of Isaiah 35 as a warm invitation to come home. Father, forgive us for the places where we build our lives on self-salvation projects. Forgive us for the places where we trust in the promises of men and culture to rescue us. Would you grant to us today a sense of confidence in your spirit and in your grace that you will bring us home, that all of the wrong done today will be undone, and that there will be glory and majesty for those who are in Christ. Father, now let this room be filled with voices singing in joy as you described in Isaiah 35 today. For you are worthy of it. We ask these things through Christ our Savior. Amen.